I'm Heather Roberts here with Kelly Cannon Miller, the executive director of the Deschutes Historical Museum. Happy week of Oregon's birthday, Kelly. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 164 years of statehood this week, and and it is kind of that that time we celebrate Valentine's Day and Oregon's birthday all on the same day. But at 164 years, it does give us a chance to kind of revisit some of the history around the start of Oregon. And part of the reason I wanted to talk with you today was uh, because after my story ran earlier this week about the actual anniversary on the 14th, back in 1859 of Oregon becoming a state, I did receive at least one comment from a listener who was concerned about the focus on Oregon's, frankly, racist beginnings. And it's something that I think a lot of people, including myself as a native Oregonian, didn't fully understand until recently. Why is that? Why have we not really talked about that until really in the last few years? Well, that's a really timely question as there's national conversations going right now about this. What do we teach in history and how do we teach it? And the idea that somehow being honest about history, warts and all, all of the pieces, that somehow we're doing that in a way that's going to shame one group, you know, that we need to protect certain groups. And that's a very emotional laden conversation that we're seeing nationwide and it's local school board levels. It's a perfect time to be talking about it. Why does that strike such a tone? because it is really important information. I I lose track of the number of times that I tell people in one setting or another about the black exclusion laws and they are stunned. They have never heard of it. Very often they are people who have spent their entire lives here and they ask the same question, why did we never learn this? It never made it into the state, you know, approved curriculum to be teaching it to us. And that's part of the problem, right? That's part of the system that all of us are being asked to look really hard at of how does the idea of white supremacy keep moving forward from generation to generation? It's because these topics never come to the surface and be analyzed and talked about in an open way that is designed to teach and analyze and recognize the consequences of you know, that kind of legislation. I teach often um, for locally for the Ben Chamber of Commerce. We do leadership bend with them. There's a whole, I get a whole morning with the leadership bend class. And I'm always so grateful that our Chamber of Commerce values history so much. And, you know, I've been doing it for a long time now. And there, there was the day where someone raised their hand and basically just asked, where is everybody else? I've never moved to someplace so white. Why is it so white? And it all begins and ends with these pieces of legislation from the 1850s. It it has that long of a history of impacting us. And so if you don't look at it, how can you actually understand the community that you're living in if you don't understand those basic concepts? There's context that's needed there, though, too. And I think that's where some people get a little bit stuck is that we became a state just two years before the start of the of the Civil War. There was a lot of talk in Congress at the time of even whether we should be allowed to become a state, because were we going to shift the balance of power between free states and slave states and Oregon voters, which at that time were white men, to be fair, 
that was the voting population all over the country. Women obviously didn't have the right to vote and you had to be white. So that's, that's all cultural context needed in that conversation. Yes. But the fact remains voters at that time elected for Oregon to join the union as a free state. And that's where the curriculum often stopped instead of also saying also they voted to exclude blacks from being allowed to live in Oregon. And that's the conversation that's only started in the last few years. Again, as a native Oregonian, I, it is shameful, but it is part of our history. Correct. As is true with all types of data, there's danger in only accepting the pieces that you want to see. And if you only you know, see that Oregon voted to become to join the union as a free state, that makes you feel good, right? How many times do you, you know, think about that in terms of exploring history and you don't want to be associated with the bad stuff? It's natural for us to want to look at only the good, but it gives you a false sense of that there's not a problem. And that's where it's dangerous to stop at Oregon voted to be a free state, because then we don't have any problems that we need to fix. Then social justice conversations become about other states where there was slavery. It gives you a little bit of a pass, you know, mentally to think, well, we don't have any problems. You know, we're not racist. We joined as a free state. And that's not to say that there haven't been vast improvements in the last 164 years. I don't want to take that away no. from, from the conversation. It's simply for me about explaining honestly when we're discussing statehood, this is part of the story. And as a journalist, this is part of the, story. Me, the story is what matters. Absolutely. And I would challenge anybody who says that the fact that Black exclusion laws existed here is only a negative story. Because if the whole point of talking about our history and talking about the issues that we're facing today is to figure out how to make us a better society, then it's a positive story when you look at our statehood to say, when we started, we were selfish and we were going to keep this place to ourselves and we were doing it for all the horrible wrong reasons that we were excluding people based on race. But we progressed from that. We developed a system of government that allowed the people to have a say-so in its legislation. And we got to the point where in 1926, we removed that from statehood. So if you look at the entire story, and the entire conversation, it shows us as a state that is progressing in the right direction and that you can change and adjust and grow as a society and a community. And so by insisting that it's only a negative story and shows our state in a negative light, keep going, keep going in history and find where we start fixing those mistakes because that shows you the path forward. That's actually the point of looking at history is that we as a people do grow and evolve and change. And we can work to fix these kinds of issues. Speaking of looking forward, let's look forward to what's happening at the museum. I I promised you a chance to talk about (laughs) your current exhibits. So tell me what's happening at the Deschutes Historical Museum right now. Well, it's a really full stop from the heavy conversation of exclusion laws and and showing representation in, in our history and getting to the light and fluffy Um, So we are working really hard at looking at the last half of the 20th century here at the museum and looking at things that happened that, you know, happened after the logging industry or in addition to the logging history and what other stories do we have here. And one of the really fun stories 
is Central Oregon's role in the creation and development of mountain biking as a sport. Kind of the spot that everyone agrees is the home to mountain biking is Marin County, California. But Central Oregon actually got connected with the folks who were throwing themselves around on bikes in Northern California pretty quickly. And Central Oregon had a lot of areas that were just perfect for mountain biking and originalists in with clunker bicycles to be throwing themselves around in the forest. And one of them is Bob Woodward, who ends up becoming mayor of Bend and was known as the mountain biking mayor of Bend. He actually wrote the first book on mountain biking for Sports Illustrated. He literally Um, wrote the book. Literally wrote the book (laughs) on mountain biking. And then also Speed and Research was a company building motorcycles here. They built probably the second, one of the very first mountain bikes that you could buy specifically for mountain biking. They were a little bit ahead of their time, frankly. And at the time at $1,200, it was considered way too expensive and that no one was ever going to be forking out that kind of money for a mountain bike. And of course, now they go for just thousands and thousands of dollars and $1,200 seems like chump change. We are almost out of time, but what can they see at the exhibit? Can they actually well, we're see gonna have a clunker. bikes? Gonna have yeah, a clunker. we're going to okay. have some clunkers. We're going to have some fantastic 80s biking outfits that have some spectacular colors on them. And when does the exhibit open? Uh, We're going to do a soft open on March 17th, but then around April 1st, we're going to have an official opening and a party and and celebrate Bob and Phil and Phil's Trail and Peter Dog. And you're going to learn all of their great nicknames that they had for one another. Just in time for mountain biking season. Just in time for mountain biking season. Kelly Cannon Miller, thank you so much for for joining me in a serious and fun conversation. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. (laughs) You're listening to FM News 100 and 1110 KBND.